A hearty welcome to all who are listening to this message through uh, Sermon Audio this morning. Our main text for this morning's sermon comes from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 16, and I've entitled it, Amalek Attacks Israel. And so if you have your Bibles handy, would you all please turn with me to that text now, and we will read it together. That's Exodus 17, verses 1 to 16. Exodus 17, 1 to 16. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come out water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out. And fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. May the Lord grant us the grace to understand the text before us this morning. In our last message on the book of Exodus, 
we tackled the 16th chapter of this marvelous book and looked at how God miraculously provided the children of Israel with bread from heaven called manna. In that particular chapter, they were given very specific instructions on how to gather it, how much to gather it, and when not to gather it. Those who obeyed had more than enough, while those who disobeyed went without. We saw also how quickly and easily the children of Israel began to murmur and to criticize Moses for taking them out of Egypt. They longed for their former estate. Though they were in bondage, they protested that they at least sat by the flesh pots and did eat bread to the full, Exodus 16.3. They presumed it would have been better for them to have died in Egypt by the hand of the Lord than to have been dragged out into the desert and to die of hunger in this wilderness. They were no different than any one of us today. The fallen nature is the same in every human being. Fallen man is self-centered, not caring for anything else but to satisfy one's ego. There is never an end to the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. Fallen man, if left to himself, will degenerate to unimaginable depths of evil and moral depravity. We have all seen this throughout the ages of history. But the most frightening thing about the fallen nature is that it always convinces us that somehow we are different, that we would never do such a thing even under those same kind of circumstances. And yet the word of God warns us over and over again, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians ten twelve. Fallen man always sees himself as better, as more moral, more righteous, more honest than his fellow man, or than his neighbor. And because of that, he is doomed to failure. Without God, man is helpless and without hope. And that is why we must always be reminded of who God is and what he has done for us. And so the 16th chapter of Exodus concludes with Moses instructing Aaron to take a pot and place an omer of manna inside it as a testimony or reminder for all future generations of what the Lord did for the children of Israel. Now as we come to chapter 17, we see Israel journeying from the wilderness of sin and pitching camp in Rephidim. But there was no water there for the people to drink, and so they again began to chide with Moses, demanding that he give them water to drink. Once again, we need to remember that this is a huge mass of humanity with innumerable livestock as well. Water is scarce in the desert, and if there is any, it certainly would not have been enough to meet the needs of such a large troop. So on the one hand, 
we can understand the apprehensions of the people and their concerns for their children, the elderly, and their livestock. And the longer they went without water, the more vocal and violent became their protests against Moses. Verse 3. Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Man can survive quite a few days without food, but without water, death is certain. And yet they blamed Moses. They accused Moses for their troubles. Instead of directing their cause to the Lord, and addressing their needs to Jehovah God, they instinctively attack Moses. How quickly they have forgotten the miracles that the Lord had done in securing their freedom through Moses. The ten plagues, the parting of the sea, and destroying Pharaoh and his army, the manna from heaven, the quails, etc. They were all eyewitnesses to these things, and yet, they still failed to understand and to trust God for their provisions. They were so angry at Moses that they were on the verge of stoning him. And then where would they be? How would that remedy their circumstance? Instead of pleading with God, they turn on Moses. But notice, please, what Moses does. He turns to God in prayer. But this is no ordinary mechanical run-of-the-mill prayer. The scripture says in verse 4 that Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. Moses cried unto the Lord. That is, he wept before the Lord as he presented his case. Now this kind of prayer always receives the attention of the Almighty. King David thus prayed on a regular basis. Often he would get up from his knees with his eyes red from weeping. We all remember how David pleaded for the life of his son, who was born of Bathsheba out of adultery. God's punishment to David was that he, God, would take the young child before the eighth day. But though David knew he was guilty, and that God would punish him for his sin, he nonetheless threw himself at the mercy of God. For we are told in Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 21 to 23, <clears throat> excuse me. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, Thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, that is David, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And so Moses, too, fervently besought the Lord in like manner. Now, there were two immediate needs that had to be met. First, Moses asks, what shall I do unto this people? 
Lord, they want water. They're thirsty, but there's no water in sight. What shall I do? I can't meet their need. Secondly, Moses expresses his fear of life. They be almost ready to stone me. And it was a real fear. When an angry mob is allowed to fester and stew over their demands, reason escapes them, and violence is always the end result. Moses was in very danger of being stoned. But he did the right thing. He inquired of the Lord in prayer. There's only one who is able to do the impossible, and Moses went directly to him. Look at the Lord's answer in Exodus 17, verses 5 to 6. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. What a sight that must have been. Water gushing out in abundance as though through a burst dam. The water flowed in streams and rivers throughout the camp of Israel. It is most probable that as this happened, that the children of Israel dug canals to direct its flow and pools into which it could settle. There would be enough water now to water all their livestock, enough to quench their thirst, enough to wash their clothes, etc. This was yet another example to the Israelites of God's abundant supply and provision. And furthermore, we see yet another picture of Christ in this smitten rock at Horeb. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.4 writes concerning the children of Israel, And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Thus, the first portion of the chapter ends with verse 7. And he, that is Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then there seems to be a very abrupt change of both theme and scene in verses 8 to 16. This second portion of the 17th chapter relates Israel's very first battle in warfare, that with Amalek, who attacked them at Rephidim. Now, who was this Amalek, and why did he attack the Israelites? We read in Genesis 36:12 that Amalek was the son of Eliphaz and the grandson of Esau. Amalek was the founder of a warlike tribe known as the Amalekites. 
And since the Amalekites were descendants of Esau, the enmity which Esau had for Jacob, who stole his birthright, seemed to have run deeply into the bloodline and thus manifested itself in the unprovoked attack against the faint and feeble troop of Israelites, who at this stage were quite defenseless. What seemed at first to be an easy prey to the Amalekites, in the end, proved to be their worst nightmare. They had miscalculated the entire situation, for they had forgotten that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the one who was both deliverer and defender of this vagabond tribe of Israelites. And so in verse 8, Moses instructs Joshua to select the most capable men from out of Israel and to prepare for battle with Amalek. Now, there is no time to properly train or arm the men because the battle would take place in the morning. And there is no record of Moses consulting the Lord concerning the strategy for battle. But yet we may assume that somehow Moses had been instructed by the Spirit of God as to what needed to be done. Thus Joshua leads the men into battle while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the hilltop where the Israelites would have sight of him. Now there was with them Hur, and we might wonder who this Hur was. For as we shall see very shortly, he was given a very great responsibility. Now according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Hur, it seems, was the husband of Miriam, who was the sister of Moses. If that were the case, then he would be well known and trusted by both Moses and Aaron. And so as Moses stood on the hilltop with his staff lifted up toward heaven, Aaron and Hur stood, on, stood beside Moses, one on either side of him. And the scriptures tell us in verse 11, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Please notice three things here in conclusion. Joshua is said to have defeated Amalek. But though Joshua fought bravely, the army he led was undisciplined in battle, poorly armed and prone to murmur. Yet God gave them the victory. Secondly, the Lord instructs Moses in verse 14 to write all of this in a book as a memorial and entrust Joshua to transmit it or to pass it down to generation after generation. God wanted his people to know 
what Amalek did to Israel and how God protected Israel so that future generations would know that God fights for his people. And because of this, that the Amalekites would eventually be removed from history. And the third and final point to notice here is that Moses erects an altar to God for this victory and not in honor of Joshua, which most men would have done. The victory here, as before, belonged totally to God, and so the altar would be a reminder to Israel of that fact. Moses names the altar Jehovah Nisi, verse 15, meaning Jehovah is my banner. The chapter then ends with verse 16, for he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, before I conclude in prayer, I need to ask you all some serious questions. Where does God stand in your life? Is he both your Savior and Lord, or is he neither? We are presently experiencing a most unique world crisis. Never before has the world been so united in its strategy of dealing with a deadly virus. A virus, incidentally, which has been secretly created in a lab to infect human beings. No one knows what tomorrow will bring, but those who have been truly born of the Spirit of God know with certainty that there will be a better future one day because we know the one who holds the future. Oh, dear friends, do not be overwhelmed by the crisis at hand, but rather consider carefully whether you are a genuine child of God. If you are uncertain, won't you turn from your sins and by faith trust Christ and Christ alone as your sin bearer even now? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16.31 Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank thee so much for this precious account in Exodus chapter 17 of Moses and the Israelites and how thou didst protect thy people from an overwhelming army which they could not have defended against themselves. And Father, this is a lesson for each one of us here this morning as well that though our circumstances that we face may seem to be impossible, we have a God who is able to do the impossible. Father, we thank thee for this holy book and pray that as we read it daily, that thou might be pleased to speak to us, to encourage us, and to build us up in our holy faith. Part us now with thy blessing. And if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together through this vehicle called Sermon Audio.
to study thy word together. In whose name we pray. Amen.